Welcome to our first lecture of this year's Runtabers Lecture Series. We are glad that you joined us this morning or uh, whenever it is that you watch this lecture. And we're very excited that you are invested in our seminary enough to listen to these lectures. Our topic for this uh, series is Historic Premillennialism, the unity of the, the scriptures brought together in this particular eschatological position. So as we begin this series, we begin with a question. Why start a series of lectures on historic premillennialism with a lecture on the church? Shouldn't we look at the book of Revelation or one of the apocalyptic uh, prophets in order to talk about eschatology? Well, we, we could do that, and we will do that in future uh, lectures. Dr. John uh, Battle is going to look at the, um, the coming of Christ and how it is a post-tribulational coming of Christ. Uh, Professor Chris Lynch is going to look at Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and uh, Revelation in light of the New Covenant. And uh, Pastor uh, Steve Brenniger is going to look at the fact that the scriptures teach that there's going to be two resurrections at, uh, in the future, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous. It is important, however, that a series of lectures on historic premillennialism begins with a consideration of the nature and identity of the church because that is the area in which unfounded accusations are made against this particular eschatological position. The accusation levied against historic premillennialism is that we are dispensational premillennialists. This accusation is often brought by the less informed, those that have not taken the time to actually look at the differences between those two uh, positions. And the truth is that there is a world of difference between these two systems. And at the core of that difference is the nature and identity of the church. Historic premillennialism is born out of the covenantal understanding of the scriptures that ties the church with the Abrahamic covenant. And this, this is anything but dispensationalism. Charles Rari, who is considered by many the father of modern dispensationalism, says the following in his book, Dispensationalism Today. You can read that on pages 44 through 46 of his book. He says, what then is the sine qua non of dispensationalism? The answer is threefold. A dispensationalist keeps Israel and the church distinct. Chafer summarizes it as follows. The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages, God is pursuing two distinct purposes. One related to the earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved with which is Judaism. While the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity. Rari continues, this is probably the most basic theological test of whether or not a man is a dispensationalist. And it is undoubtedly the most practical and conclusive. A man who fails to distinguish Israel and the church will inevitably not hold to dispensational distinctions. And one who does, will. And Ryrie makes then a second point. 
This distinction between Israel and the church is born out of a system of hermeneutics, which is usually called literal interpretation. Therefore, the second aspect of the sine qua non of dispensationalism is the matter of plain hermeneutics. And then the third point that he makes concerning uh, what is essential for dispensationalism is as follows. A third aspect of the sine qua non of dispensationalism is a rather technical matter. It concerns the underlying purpose of God in the world. The covenant theologian, in practice, makes the purpose salvation. And the dispensationalist says the purpose is broader than that, namely the glory of God. Although we might argue with Ryrie about the uniqueness of points two and three to dispensationalism, we say a hearty amen to his assessment that the main difference between dispensationalism and other millenarian positions is its view of the church in relation to Israel. Historic premillennialists reject this absolute distinction between Israel and the church. And that's what I'm going to try to set forth to you in this lecture, the identity of the church and the nature of the church as you relate to the whole of the scriptures. And I would like to start that by doing a word study on the word church. How is the word church used in the Bible? Now, as we do that, it's important that we realize that the word church is not used in the Bible in a unified sense. That is to say that it doesn't always mean the same thing. And I think that that particular word, church, is used in at least six different ways in the Bible. It is used to describe the collection of all true believers through the ages, what we might call the invisible church. Some have called it the eschatological church or the triumphant church. A passage that uses that, the word church in that way is Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23, where the author of Hebrews and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Another way that this word church is used in the Bible is to refer to the collection of professing Christians and their children at a point in time. And that's what we call in theology the visible church, what some have called the historical or the militant church. A couple of passages that use the word church in that way is 1 Corinthians 10, 32, where Paul says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. When Paul says he persecuted the church of God, he's not talking about a particular congregation, and he's not talking about this abstract concept of the visible church, but he's talking about the visible church that was present at the time that he lived. A third way that the Bible uses the word church is to refer to the gathering of believers in the same place, what today we call a local church or a particular church. Colossians 4.15 uses the word that way when Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Fourthly, the word church is used to refer to the collection of several churches in a geographical area. In Acts 
9.31, Luke says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and had peace and was being built up. Here, Luke said, talks about the church in the area and used the singular word church. So he's not talking about the, the visible church, the church that existed at his time as a whole. He's not talking the church about the church as an abstract concept, as the invisible church. And he's not talking about one particular local congregation. He's almost talking about the church in the, as a concept of a presbytery of a church in a geographical area. The word church is also used to refer to the church as an organism, emphasizing the people that are in it. That's how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We can talk about it, about it as the organic church, the church by focusing on the people who are part of it. And the word church is used about to talk about the church as an institution to which the sacraments were given, which exercises church discipline, to which corporate worship was given, which is called the ground and pillar of truth. That's how Paul refers to the church in 1 Timothy 3.15, when he instructs young Timothy the following, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. He's not just referring to the church of Ephesus. He's not just referring to the church where uh, Tim, Timothy would be, but he's referring to the church as institution, institution. And this lecture then develops this last way of thinking about the church. Though these categories are not completely mutually exclusive and there is some overlap, but we're going to talk about the church as an institution. What is it? When did it begin? What is its nature? Who is part of, of that? Now, some, some may ask, since the word church is not used in the Old Testament, shouldn't we assume that it didn't exist in the Old Testament? Uh, now, th though this is a common question, it is not based on a full understanding of how the biblical languages work. For reasons that are beyond the scope of this lecture, the earliest English translators of the Bible chose to use the English word church to translate only the Greek word ecclesia, leaving its Hebrew equivalents to be translated by other English words such as congregation and assembly. Now, it suffices to say that, that these translations weren't textually, linguistically, or theologically driven. It seems that these were stylistic decisions, above all else, by the early English translators. The Septuagint, which is a very early Greek translation of the Old Testament, as a matter of fact, it was the translation of the Old Testament that was in use during the first century, during the Apostolic Church, a translation that many of the apostles, many of the New Testament writers use when they quote the Old Testament. And the Septuagint actually uses the word ecclesia almost 300 times to describe Israel as a religious institution in the Old Testament. One example of that is Psalm 22, verse 22, where the psalmist says, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Now, the Septuagint used the word ecclesia there for congregation. So if we, if we are being uh, consistent with how the word is translated in the New Testament, 
then this uh, Old Testament psalm would read, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the church, I will praise you. The Holy Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews to quote this text, and he used the rendering, the translation of the Septuagint in the book of Hebrews, confirming the linguistic propriety of referring to Israel as the church. In Hebrews 2, verse 12, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, 22, but he doesn't quote the version that we have in the Hebrew Old Testament. He quotes the version that we have in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and he says the following, he says in Hebrews 2, verse 12, and I'm going to quote from the King James because a lot of the modern translations tend to for whatever reason, in these particular passages to not be consistent in the translation of the word ecclesia. So Hebrews 2.12 in the King James says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Stephen further confirms that it is appropriate to think of Israel as the church at least from a linguistic perspective, when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says the following, again quoting from the King James in Acts 7.38, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness, referring to the Old Testament Israel, the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. So had the Old Testament been written in English, it is very likely, not in English, I'm sorry, had the Old Testament been written in Greek, it is very likely that the English word church would be found throughout its pages. Therefore, we can put to rest the argument that because the English word church is not in the Old Testament of our modern translations, that the church didn't exist. This argument just doesn't make linguistic sense. It, just not, it is just not how language works. And what I want us to see here is that God established his church when he entered into a covenant with Abraham. Virtually all Presbyterian and Reformed bodies in the world, bodies that are Bible-believing accept the Belgic Confession's definition of the marks of a true church. They accept what I'm going to read next as the, a good definition of what a true church is. So in section 29, the first half of section 29, a section labeled of the marks of the true church and wherein she differs from the false churches, we read the following. We believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God, which is the true church. Since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church. But we speak not here of hypocrites who are mixed in the church with the good, yet are not of the church, though externally in it. But we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects who call themselves the church. The marks, and this is the part that I want us to listen carefully, the marks by which the true church is known are these. 
if the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all these are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto corrected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church. So the Belgic Confession, and uh, this is accepted throughout the Reformed Presbyterian world, says that there are three things that are mark of the true church. The faithful preaching of the word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. Now, John Calvin did not think that the third one, the practice of church discipline, was of the essence of the church. He thought it was of the well-being of the church. Though he said if a church doesn't practice church discipline, it will eventually uh, die. So using this broadly accepted definition of a true church, we can then identify the first time that these three elements are present in one institution. And the first time we find all these three elements present in the Bible is in the covenant God makes with Abraham, particularly in Genesis chapter 17. There, Abraham is commanded to administer the sign of the covenant to all who are eligible, every male in his household. Romans 4 says that circumcision was a sign and the seal of the covenant, which according to the Westminster standards is sacramental language. So in Genesis 17 verses 9 through 13, we read the following. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought in, uh, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So right here we have circumcision which the New Testament in Romans 5 tells us is the sacrament of the Abrahamic covenant instituted, and Abraham is to have the proper administration of that sacrament. Abraham was also to cut off from, house, from his household anyone who refused the proper administration of the sacrament of circumcision. If somebody is not willing to obey the word of God, he was supposed to cut them off. That's what we call church discipline. In Genesis 17, verse 14, we read, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He's supposed to be removed. He's supposed to be declared to be outside of his people. So here we have the administration of the sacraments, and we have the proper practice of church discipline. We, all, we also see that Abraham faithfully proclaimed the word of God, the word of the covenant, to his household. 
God speaking in Genesis 18, verse 19, speaking about Abraham, God says, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. For I have known him in order that he may command or proclaim to his children all the things that I have given to him. So here we have, we have the preaching of the word of God. We have the faithful administration of the sacraments. We have the practice of church discipline. All the marks of a true church present in the Abrahamic covenant. Now before Abraham, people were calling on the name of the Lord. You read that in, in Genesis chapter 4. So there's some sort of, of worship. There's a, 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 uh, there's a possibility that Job himself who lived either at uh, the same time as Abraham or a little before. So uh, worshiping God and offering sacrifices was a, a com common knowledge among the people who believed in God. And we know that for certain that the first person to have uh, saving faith was Abel because Hebrews 11 verse 4 tells us that. The, uh, the Genesis chapter 3 implies, we can infer from it, that Adam and Eve were also faithful believers in Jesus Christ when uh, God covers them with animal skins and blood is shed. But the people of God are not organized into a body and the worship of God is not regulated till God enters into a covenant with Abraham. And that is the beginning of the visible church. We all are part of that covenant. And we see the unity of the church in the Abrahamic covenant. Every subsequent covenant in the history of redemption flows from the Abrahamic covenant and its promise that God will be a God to us and that we are going to be his children. The Mosaic covenant flows from that. The Davidic covenant flows from that. And certainly the new covenant flows from there, that. Now, even though each covenant adds more understanding to the promises to, to Abraham, they are grounded on that same Emmanuel principle of God with us. There are discontinuities, to be sure, between each administration of the Abrahamic covenant, but the, the overall unity is obvious. We see that throughout the scriptures. And notice how the New Testament speaks of our salvation being the result of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul goes out of his way to say that those who are justified by faith in Jesus have Abraham for their father according to the promises made to him back in Genesis. Romans 4 verses 16 through 18 say, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offsprings, talking about Abraham, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your offspring be. So here we have Paul using Abraham and connecting justification by faith in Christ with 
the promises made to Abraham, that the fact that we believe in Jesus is a result of those promises given to Abraham. The gospel, Paul says, that we believe in today was preached in the Abrahamic covenant. There are elements of that same gospel in the Abrahamic covenant. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, the apostle says, does he, who supply, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Where is that found that the nations shall be blessed in you? It's found in the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was never, has never been annulled. And the salvation of Gentiles depend on it. The salvation of the nations. Sometimes we forget that the word Gentiles, really in the original language, just means nations. It's not something different. It's the nations. Anyone who is not a Jew. So the salvation of the nations, which is intrinsic to the Abrahamic covenant, will never, could never happen if the Abrahamic covenant had been annulled. Again, in Galatians chapter 3, Verses 15 through 18, Paul says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years, cannot... Uh, 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. Do you notice that? The covenant was confirmed by God in Christ. The Abrahamic covenant, even then, was confirmed by God in Christ. They should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And that's the same promise that saves us. And that's why... Towards the end of chapter 3, Paul says in verses 28 and 29 of Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. People of God, you who are in the church of Jesus Christ today, you are an heir of Abraham, you are a member of Abraham's household, and you are a descendant of Abraham by faith, according to the covenant that God made with him. Our hope today depends on the Abrahamic covenant being an everlasting covenant with apply, which applies to Gentiles as much as it applied to Old Testament Israel. That's where our hope is, that, that, that God remains faithful to that covenant, and he does. Again, the author of Hebrews by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oaths is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. Do you notice here that uh, the author of Hebrews saying that those that say that, that we are not part of the Abrahamic covenant are making God a liar because he, God, has said that we are heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. We're heirs of Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant results in one people of God, commonly called Israel in the Old Testament, and church in the New Testament, but one people of God. Do you understand that one cannot be a Christian if one is not part of Israel? Paul says that clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, and then 19 through 22. Paul says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that's 11 through 13. And when you jump, jump down to verse 19 through 22, Paul makes it even more clear when he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow citizens of what? Of the commonwealth of Israel he had just mentioned. Now, what does it mean to be a foreigner to Israel? Israel was the place where people met the true God. It was the place where the word of God was available. All the ordinances and means of grace were available. They were the object of the promises of God's covenants. They were united to God. To be part of Israel meant being chosen by God. It meant that you had the hope of the promise of Messiah. To be a foreigner to Israel meant that you didn't have any of these things and that is exactly the picture that Paul is painting of those who are outside of Christ. To be outside of Christ is to be outside of Israel, is to be outside of the favor of God. The, the Ephesian Christians, being mostly Gentiles, had experienced the taunting and the putting down of the Jews. You are not the real child of God. You are not circumcised. And Paul makes a bit of a dig here on them when he says that they are circumcised only in the flesh by hands instead of having hearts circumcised by the Spirit. Paul tells the Ephesians that they are more citizens of Israel than those circumcised in the flesh because of the blood of Christ in verse 3 of chapter 3. The Ephesians and us were indeed once strangers to Israel, and that meant several things. They were separated from the Messiah. Paul says that in verse 12. Paul used the word Christ by itself to connote the concept of the Messiah instead of a proper name. They were not part of the citizenship of Israel. Again, in verse 12, Paul says that they could not enjoy any of the benefits of the duties or the duties of being part of the Israel of God. They were not the objects of God's blessings 
through the covenants that God made with his people. He says that again in verse 12. They had no hope, particularly in the life to come. Paul says that in verse 12, though they had many gods, they had many idols, they were without God. Paul says again that in verse 12. And that's exactly where you and I are if we have not believed that the blood of Christ was shed for us. And that is where all of us who believe in Jesus Christ once were, strangers to Israel. But through the blood of Christ, we are no longer a foreigner, but a full citizen of Israel with the rights and benefits and duties, as Paul says in verse 13. Now, I remember once arguing with someone about the idea, uh, this particular idea of being a citizen of Israel, and this person said that the Gentiles are just brought close to Israel, but not made part of Israel. And one could almost say that if all we had was verse 13. Even then, it would be a difficult position to take. But Paul explicitly says that one who believes in Christ becomes a citizen of Israel in verse 19. So through faith in Christ, you and I are no longer alienated from the citizenship of Israel. We are no longer strangers or outsiders to the covenant of promises. Though the emphasis is different, Paul speaks of the same concept in Romans, in chapter 11, particularly verses 16 through 18, where he says that you and I as Gentiles have been grafted into the same olive tree that started with Abraham. That we are not part of a different tree, that there's a Israel tree and then there's a church tree, that the church is the same tree, is a continuation of Israel, that we're grafted into that tree, not some other tree. There is a unity among the people of God throughout the ages. The separation that existed between Jews and Gentiles was the result of sin, and Christ's blood took care of that, Paul says in Ephesians 2.14. Therefore, through faith in Christ, you are brought near to Israel and become the citizen of Israel. Not the skinny strip of land in the Middle East, but the Israel of God, the church of the firstborn, the number of those who have their hearts circumcised by the Spirit of God, those to whom the Bible's covenantal promises were made. God has always been after that, and those have always been his people. As early as Deuteronomy, God says, you have been circumcised in the flesh, but you're still stiff-necked because you have not been circumcised in the heart. And from the very beginning, a member of Israel, the Israel of God, was one who was circumcised in the heart. As a side note, it is amazing to me how Paul speaks of no longer being separated from God by being united to a people in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 2. Don't isolate. The church is important, people of God. Don't isolate yourself from the people of God. A big part of God's plan of redemption was to make you part of a people, part of a community, a family, as he mentions in verse 19. Your union with God is experienced through your union with God's people. Sure, you may have been hurt and there is no guarantee that you won't be hurt again. That's what, that's what it means to be part of a family. We need each other despite all the risks. 
God has brought us, and that's how God's always worked, is brought people into relationship with himself, and that relationship manifests itself in the context of a gathered community, the Church of Jesus Christ, finding its beginning with Abraham. The opposite of whom we were without Christ is true about us in Christ. That is what the but in verse 13 of Ephesians 2 tell us. We are united to Christ rather than separated. We are citizens of Israel, the church for whom Christ died rather than aliens. We are heirs of the covenants of promises rather than strangers to them. That's who we are in Christ, members of Israel. And because of the new covenant is a further development of the Abrahamic covenant, it was made with Israel. Now, that's something that we miss sometimes. I think we, we, we like talking about the new covenant and we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a sacrament of the new covenant. We are excited about the new covenant, the idea of having a heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh placed in us. Uh, Professor Lynch is going to develop this idea more in the second lecture. But we don't realize or we forget the new covenant was made with Israel. And if we're not part of Israel, then we are not part of the new covenant. It is, it is very difficult to get around the fact that the new covenant was made with Israel. And unless you're part of Israel, one has no part in the new covenant. Listen to the passage that actually uses the words new covenant. And that's where most people uh, get their idea of new covenant from in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. The prophet says, was God speaking to the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand of, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Listen to it again. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with whom? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ says, that his supper is a sign and a seal of this new covenant. In 1 Corinthians 11, 25, Paul, recording the words of institution, says in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And I think some realize the tension here, but they still don't want to, to, to admit that the church is a continuation of Israel. And they, so they tried to get around the, this necessity of being a member of Israel in order to participate in the promises of the New Covenant by saying that the New Covenant mentioned in the New Testament is not the same as the one mentioned in Jeremiah 31. That this, the, the New Covenant that Christ speaks, that Paul speaks about, has nothing to do with Jeremiah 31. There is one problem with that, and that is the whole book of Hebrews. You cannot... Be able, you cannot teach that and, and still have the book of Hebrews in your Bible. The longest continuous quotation of the Old Testament in the New is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34 in Hebrews chapter 8. 
And the inspired author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ inaugurated that new covenant by his blood for all who believe. In Hebrews 9.15, he says, Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant. That's the, only, that's the only covenant that Christ is a mediator of. So if we're not part of that, we have no hope. So that those who have called may receive the promise, eternal inheritance. Promise where? In the Abrahamic covenant. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the, the, the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Talking about the Mosaic covenant there. Again, at the end of the book, in Hebrews 20, uh, 12, 22 through the 24, he says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, again, the mediator of a new covenant, and to this sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, everyone who comes to faith in Christ is grafted into Israel and becomes a member of the new covenant. There's no hope for us if we're not part of that Israel with whom God entered into the new covenant. And as we come to a close then, it's, it, it behooves us to just say a word about the unity of the church and Israel and the future. It's important that we realize that the promises made to Abraham are for the church. He is our God and we are his people. He is our God, a God to us and to our children. The land promises made to Abraham are also made to us. The land promises made to Abraham were never fulfilled in their entirety, definitely not in his lifetime. If you, if you look at Genesis 15, another passage that speaks of the Abrahamic covenant, verses 17 through 20, where God describes the, the boundaries of the land. The land, Israel never occupied that uh, piece of land. The boundaries never extended to where God says they would. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews again says that Abraham died without receiving the promises. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, we read, These all died, referring back to Abraham, to Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar off and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And the word their earth could even be land. The, the land was never theirs. They're always strangers and exiles. And the new covenant, which is a better covenant, according to the book of Hebrews, expands the land promise from just Palestine to the whole world. And that's why Christ can say in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And these land promises will be fulfilled at the coming of Christ during his millennial kingdom. And we are going to be part of the fulfillment of those promises. And whether God will do a work of revival among ethnic Israel is something that this view of the church allows for, for but doesn't require. And, and we can differ in that, but this view allows for a future revival of ethnic Israel. And if, but if God does work a special work of revival among, among ethnic Israel, it will be through Jesus Christ. As it has always been, reconciliation between man and God 
only happens by the grace of God through faith in the mediator of the covenant independently from any work or any ethnic markers that we have. So people of God, our God has one bride and one bride only. He's not a bigamist with an earthly bride and a heavenly bride. The name of the bride is Israel, the church of the living God. 